You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Leon Furs, a teacher educator and author. Leon is also the director of learning and teaching at a regional Victorian high school. In this episode, we explore Leon's early enthusiasm and connections to reading and literature, growing up in a lower socio-economic area of England. Leon reflects on some of the texts that influenced him along his journey studying English and American literature at university and further study in becoming an English teacher. We chat about Leon's latest book, Practical Reading Strategies, Engaging Activities for Secondary Students, which introduces teachers to what good readers do and the ideas that underpin reading for meaning. We find out how teachers can support and guide students to make connections between the text and their own lived experiences, as well as connections with the student's broader world. We explore a range of teaching strategies, including visualization and questioning, the value of empathizing with the book's characters and stepping into their world, and how teachers can support their students to make inferences that is, reading between the lines, as they engage more meaningfully with a text. We discover there's more to English assessment than the dreaded death by comprehension questions, as Leon shares his thoughts on some alternative approaches, including his current collaboration with the University of Melbourne entitled New Metrics for Success. We find out about the value and practical use of learner profiles and folio-based assessments that help students structure and organise their evidence. Finally, Leon offers a range of insights on the significance of trust and teacher autonomy within education and assessment systems. Here's my conversation with Leon Furs. So, hello, Leon. It's very nice to be speaking with you. That's good to speak with you as well, Mark. So, you are an English teacher, among other things. You've you've just written, or you've written several books as well. I'm interested to know, um, going back in time, where where it all began, or you know, were, were you were you interested in reading or writing at an early age, or you know. Yeah, so um, I grew up in England, in Stoke-on-Trent, which is a pretty low socioeconomic area. Um, it's, a, it's a former industrial town, and uh, the primary school that I went to was a state primary school, but we, we were lucky in that we had some great teachers there. Uh, my love for reading, I think, was, was coached through one English teacher there in particular, Mrs. Cartledge, and um, she really encouraged reading in all of us but um for, for me in particular i think i got my hands on a terry pratchett Discworld book at one point and um she she noticed that i was reading that and then gave me eight more of them to to wade through in a pile and uh from that point on i can remember just reading constantly really um then i hit secondary school um Originally, again, I was in a state school and then moved across into a Catholic school. 
and again, most of my memories from from secondary school, the the positive memories were ones from the English classroom again. So. Uh, Mrs. Ferns and Mrs. Slattery, the the English teachers, the head of faculty, um, just excellent again at encouraging reading and, and facilitating reading. And it, oddly, I was probably more of a maths and science student throughout school, and English um, was was just sort of a bit of a hobby, I guess. I used to just read a lot in my spare time. So, what did you move on to in that in the high school? What sort of novels? Yeah. Okay. So I, I mean, I went through, um, I, I stayed with the Terry Pratchett novels for a long time. Um, and I, I think I segued from them into other fantasy science fiction, um, I spent a bit of time on horror. I don't know if you remember those point horror books that were for teenagers. They were sort of like a, <laughs> I a, like a bean stripped down for, um, for teenagers. Um, I'm reading actually age. a book. Sorry to interrupt. I'm reading a book on, um, it's called, uh, paperbacks from hell and it's all about those 1970s and 80s horror novels it's really funny yeah so you know I, there were always books around at home and um uh, my my mum was a big fan of like dean Kuntz and um uh, stephen king those those types of authors so i spent a little bit of time in horror and then made my way back to science fiction um which is which is pretty much where I've stayed for the rest of the rest of my life, and so now I write science fiction, um, and particularly a few science fiction short stories at the moment. But yeah, look, it all stemmed from from those early early days, and because of where I grew up, um, where I grew up was fairly sketchy, I guess, and uh, a lot of my school friends. We had a lot of school dropouts. We had a lot of problems with drink and drugs and teen pregnancy, teen suicide, you know, really high rates of, um, of all of those negative, you know, what you would expect from a very low socioeconomic area. And, and in a lot of ways, I think just getting, getting my head down and stuck in a book um, saved me from all of that because at the end of secondary school, when I did my A-levels, English and literature were the only results that I, um, that I did well in all of the others were, were pretty ordinary. And, um, and then I went on to university to study English and American literature. So I did a, a, a dual honors in English and American literatures at Keele university. And, um, yeah, just, I think the, the, the ability to choose which modules I was going to undertake, which, um, which areas of text I was going to study was something brand new to me. Obviously I'd just gone through secondary school and, and basically gone through whatever they put in front of us, most of which I enjoyed anyway. But when I hit university and was able to kind of choose my own adventure, that was, <laughs> um, that was really the key. I also used to love those choose my own, choose yeah. my own adventure books as well. Um, <laughs> I really like the fact that you have referenced the teachers by specific names, which is great. They're obviously influential, but also at home, there seemed to be like a bit of a culture of reading. Would that be true? Yeah, I think my both both my parents read um, read a lot, so it wasn't you know it wasn't uncommon for me to see them reading just just casually wherever. And the house was there was a lot of books in the house. Um, there were a couple of bookshelves around the place. And I think uh, obviously now, and there's a lot of research that supports this, but that's a that's an incredibly important thing for early literacy. And I've got children of my own now. I've got three children, 
um, and the the eldest has just started um, prep. And I think you know, just her her love of reading is really um, really makes me happy. And I think a lot of that is just from my wife and I again being really big readers. So when you were at uni and with the, you were kind of um, more involved with English and American literature, what sort of reading were you choosing? Um, yeah, so look, I, I still wasn't the ideal student. I never, I never was really. Um, the, the kind of the structures of, of secondary school didn't suit me well. And then the freedom of university was probably a bit of a catch-22. So I ended up um, not going to many lectures in the first year, um, which was when I was supposed to be doing Renaissance and um, Victorian literature. Where, where I really got back into it was um, there was an English literature unit on popular fiction and cultural theory, which included, uh, that was a, a very diverse subject. And that went from Mills and Boone, um, those trashy romance novels, um, so trashy that they couldn't even specify which text you'd study because they'd, they'd be out of print by the time the text list was published. So you just said, get any, it doesn't matter. Hugely popular, um, hugely, like in yeah, terms yeah, of popular yeah. culture, yeah, really well-known. Incredibly popular. Um, through to, again, science fiction. So that's where I discovered um, Octavia Butler. Um, we did her collection that's called Lilith Brood, um, the, the Xenogenesis collection. I think that's that's probably still my favorite science fiction trilogy. Um, and to, to ha- and you know there was a there was a little unit in there on on the grotesque and the gruesome in popular fiction. So that touched on horror and sort of body horror and thrillers and science fiction again. So just this 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 really diverse unit that went from Mills and Boone um, and that that kind of really trashy formulaic romance through to really deep and, and meaningful genre fiction, um, you know, to, to, to encounter the range of, of authors from the Mills and Boone authors who were um, basically anonymous and churned out materials by the, <laughs> by the hundreds of their books to a, a black female science fiction author um, writing in America in that, you know, in that era. So just that the diversity of that course was fantastic. So what did you um, do? Like you're reading the novels or you're reading the kind of literature, but then are you analysing it or are you looking for cultural references or how, how are you kind of engaging with it as part of your study? Yeah, so those those courses were really my first introduction to, um, to, to various literary theories. So, um, you know, we... We, we crossed over all of the major theories, I think, in those literature units. Um, and, and really most of the tuition was in small group settings. So it was a, it was a small university that I went to, Keele University, probably only had about 3,000 students all up and um, two thirds of us lived on campus. So a real tight community. Um, and we used to have tutor groups of about a dozen students. So uh, not, not many lectures, not much in, in lecture kind of format, which I think has also influenced my teaching as I've gone along, uh, these small group setting literature workshops were um, were really where it's at. And then because of it, um, because it was a dual course, the other side of it was American literature. And in the third year, I, um, I was introduced to the, the, the beat generation and the 
the poetry and the novels and, and Kerouac and Ginsburg and um, and all of those people. And again, just a really fantastic um, tutor for that course, Oliver, who had grown up and, and lived in San Francisco um, during that era. He's you know he'd, he'd hung around in all of those jazz bars. He's <laughs> he'd, he'd been in movements and protests on the streets, and he'd, he'd come back to the UK and and taken up a position as a professor. And he just um, yeah, he was incredibly helpful in, in coaching me through my final dissertation at the end of university. So what was that on? What was your final dissertation on? Um, the, the issues that the, the Beat Generation authors faced in getting their works published. Wow. So it's a fairly niche um, subject. And um, I remember just again the the kind of left field teaching methods of some of these these tutors so at one point um i actually wrote about this recently for the victorian association of teaching of english faiths their their magazine but at one point um we we were sent down on a field trip to oxford um to one of the oxford university libraries because it was the only existing um, copy that we could get our hands on of a, an issue of Playboy magazine with a, an interview with um, William S. Burroughs. It was one of the only interviews that existed. And this was, you know, we were predating the ability to just search for everything on Google by a few years, not by long, but by a few years. So we, we trundled down to Oxford in a little minibus and um, went to this library with this. Um, it's a, this is a short story in itself. Plastic, yeah, this plastic wrapped um, issue of Playboy magazine, which was just there for the um, the interview article. It was probably one of the most bizarre field trips that I've that I've been on. Probably not one that I would take my own students on either, but um, definitely a, a good formative part of that university course. And so, then, what when you graduated? Then what happened? Like, you, what does one do when they graduate from a that sort of course? Well, that was probably the exact question that I asked. And um, after sitting on it for a while, the postgraduate certificate of education, it's called in the UK. So that's like a, like a dip ed. Yeah. Um, the applications for that course had actually closed, uh, but I thought I would give it a shot anyway and um, put in an application a couple of weeks after the closing date. Um, results from that university course were good. So I think that helped me to, to get onto that course. And it was a PGC in English media and drama. So those are my three teaching methods. And um, yeah, Rob and Jan, the, the, the lecturers on that course were, um, you know, again, just really hands-on, really practical course. The, there wasn't a lot of um, lecture or theory. We were straight into schools. We were using very diverse teaching methods. And the schools that I did my training at, because um, I ended up going back to Stoke to do my teaching rounds, just those very low socioeconomic schools, one school with, with a really high proportion of students um, on, a, on the disability register, um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of issues in those schools, which I think was uh, was good to encounter that early on. Yeah. So how was that when you were well, you sort of all ready, you know, recently graduated and you're out in a school, but then some of the students, like, were they not so interested in reading? I, I'm making an <laughs> assumption there. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a fair assumption. I mean, on on my teaching rounds, um, I went to. Uh, two schools which were 
which were very um, low down in their in their literacy, numeracy, and all of those kinds of scores. And, and mostly that was about engaging the students and keeping them engaged. So at one school, we worked with a local radio station and got the students to um, to uh, to set up their own radio station and, and that kind of thing. Particularly in a time that you know predates podcasts and um, the, the ability to kind of do this thing online. Um, working with an actual industry, working with the radio station, working with local newspapers and those kinds of things really helped. Um, and then I went traveling for uh, probably just over half a year and just took a bit of a break before starting the career properly. And um, then moved back to, I uh, moved down to London actually. And I, my first full-time teaching job was was at an all boys school in Northeast London. And then I guess eventually you must have come out to Australia at some point. Like, what? How did that? How did that yeah. happen? Yeah. Well, um, well, in that little break while I was travelling, I met um, who uh, my my wife, my future wife. Um, we ended up travelling part of the loop around Europe together. Uh, became really good friends, and um, then we moved in together in London. And we were still just good friends. Um, <laughs> uh, I think everybody saw the inevitable coming a long way before we did, um, because when we inevitably weren't just good friends anymore, uh, everybody was, was um, there was no surprise there. <laughs> uh, we got engaged then very um, shortly afterwards. We got engaged in Belgium, actually. Um, and then uh, my wife said, look, I, you know, I live out on, on this farm in the middle of nowhere, four hours away from the nearest city in, in, uh, in Australia. Uh, shall we go back there for a while? And I thought, yeah, okay. So <laughs> to move from this, this um, fairly dense, low socioeconomic industrial town uh, to London um, for a couple of years, and then to come out here in 2009, at the end of 2009, and um, started working here at Monovey College straight away. So uh, I'd actually applied for and done the interview over Skype, I think at two o'clock in the morning or something and uh, got a, got an English teaching position. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So in amongst all that teaching, you decided to write, start writing some books. How did that come about? Um, I, I think I've always enjoyed writing. Um, I've always sort of dabbled in writing, never really tried it professionally until about 2019. Um, so having started work at Monovey in 2010, I... Um, sort of worked my way up through different leadership positions, including head of English um, up to where I am now, which is director of learning and teaching. And along the way, I engaged with um, VAIT, who I've mentioned, the, the Victorian Association for the Teaching of English. I got involved with them quite a lot. Um, I was on council for them for a little while, uh, just helping with the, the regional members. And through that work, I ended up presenting at the, the state conferences and uh, things like that. Um, and I think presenting to teachers, presenting professional learning and, and being in a leadership position in a school where I was in charge of running professional learning led quite naturally into writing for teachers as well. So in 2019, I was 
um, contacted by one of the editors at Jacaranda who had been to the VATE conference um, and had seen me speak at one of the panels at the VATE conference. And she was on the lookout for some authors for their new English series. So, so that was the Jacaranda English textbook. And then um, the one that we're talking about today, Practical Reading Strategies, that came about as a, a culmination, I guess, of the, the 10 years or so of work that I'd been doing as an English teacher and, and working with other English teachers. And um, a lot of work that we'd done with FATE in their community of practice around reading. And uh, I was contacted by Alicia Cohen, who's the, the publisher. And she was, she was just starting out and recruiting a few authors who, um, who perhaps she thought had something to say. So she reached out to me um, on LinkedIn, I think, and said, you know, do, do you feel like you've got a book in you? And, and I said, look, I've, I've probably got several, so let's, uh, let's give it a go. It's <laughs> a good answer. Um, so when, you, when a teacher is in that sort of situation, given a, presented with an opportunity to write a book, what, what do you do? Like, do you go back to, like, lesson plans or do you, you've mentioned some conference presentations. Like, what, can you talk us through what the process what was for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think building up those resources over years, building up that um, that capital, I guess, is is really important. Um, you know, as teachers, we're, we're kind of like magpies anyway. We'll, we'll hoard things and keep them for years and years. So when Alicia contacted me and asked me um, about the book, I thought, you know what, I've, I've got this book sitting there it's in a it's in a thousand different folders um all, all over my uh, laptop and on different drives in the cloud but it's it's there it exists so i um the the six reading strategies that the book is based around they they already existed um on the back of that work from the community of practice and i'd been teaching and using activities and coming up with new activities for each one of those strategies for about two or three years so really, it was a case of just pulling those different ideas together. So I took some of a professional learning that I'd delivered to a school and some of a conference and a couple of things that I'd used with my own students and kind of put it all together into a, a draft table of contents to see if there looked like there was enough there um, and then just started fleshing it out from there. Now, you've already, with your 1,000 different folders, have uh, tapped into point number two, which is visualising, painting quite a clear visual there. But I, I might just read out the six just for um, for the listeners. One is making connections. Two is visualising. Three is questioning. Four is inferring. Five is summarising. And six is synthesising. So, so in amongst all of that, what's going on for, for students, for learners, and, and for teachers as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't invent these reading strategies and there's a lot of literature around um, what makes good readers. Um, and, and because I'm, you know, I'm speaking here about a, a secondary level and I'm talking about reading for meaning. So I'm not, I'm not talking about the nuts and bolts of learning to read like my daughter's currently doing in prep. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's a whole different skill set that I'm certainly not qualified for. But what I have done a lot of research and work around is, is in reading for meaning. And these six strategies... Um, they're, they're what good readers do, you know, so good readers, as they're reading, they, they make connections so they, they can see the connections between the text in front of them and their, their own lives, other texts they've read, things they've seen on the TV, things they've seen out there in the world. 
Well, why are they um, important? Um, look, I think any teaching, and this isn't just limited to English, but anywhere where you can leverage the, the existing knowledge of the students by making connections to their own lives, their personal lives, is that's a win as far as I'm concerned. So the making connections strategy, that basically gives a few activities that can um, deliberately harness that um, that thing that good readers do, and and sort of flip it around and say, okay, let's let's actually do this deliberately. So let's let's deliberately spend time drawing out these connections. So if you were to take a text like um, at the moment we're studying Pride and Prejudice in Year Twelve, that can be a really difficult text that lacks context for these students. Um, you know, written in the Regency era, totally different context, different country, different social norms. So we need to find a way to, to draw connections between their lives and the text. So what do students come up with? Um, a, a lot of them are coming up with, uh, and I think it's the kind of the, the, the zeitgeist um, and the, the way that our students have responded to, um, to issues in their world now, but a lot of them are coming up with the gender disparity of the characters in Pride and Prejudice and how gender norms and social norms around gender are reflected in that text and how that's reflected in their own lives. Um, we, we've got a big agricultural community here and some of the, um, some of the, the content in Pride and Prejudice about class is, is really resonating with them about social class distinctions. Um, and, you know, they're able to articulate that in terms of how it reflects in their own lives. And I think that gives them a really nice way into the text. So what are some of the other, like, say, visualising? Yeah, so visualising um, visualizing is an interesting one because in our experience, when we did the vague community of practice and we interviewed readers, and this is borne out by the research, you know, something different happens behind the eyes for, for every single person who, who reads. Some readers get a full audio-visual um, you know, depiction of what they're reading. Some some view it like it's almost like a movie going on behind their eyelids. Some see black and white still images. Some see text on a page. Some people are struggling to read, um, and and they're you know they're going from word to word and struggling to kind of visualize because they're not getting past that kind of sentence level. So every reader is bringing their own um, skill set and and tool set to the text. Uh, so I think what we can't do as teachers is assume that when we say, you know, what are we visualizing or what are we imagining in this scene, that every single person is, is seeing the same thing. So again, these visualizing activities, they, they flip it around to the students and they say, okay, so what, what do you see in this, in this scene? What do you hear? What do you um, sense? And I've also included empathy in, in that strategy in, in terms of, that the sensory information that we get from an author helps us to empathize with the characters, helps us to, to kind of step into their world. Um, so the visualizing strategy is really about uh, what the author has done to, to, to create that full sensory experience of the world around the text. Mm -hmm. what, um, what about the, uh, hang on, I'm just I'm flicking through your book as we speak. Hang on a minute. Sorry about this. Um, I'm just going back to your one of the one of the um, say inferring. What does what's going on when a student infers something? Yeah, inferring's um, I think the the most complex of the of the strategies, and 
and again, I think that's borne out by by research. Um, so there's there's plenty of tests around reading which can test for inferential skills, and the the ability to read between the lines, which is inference. Um, it's it's something which a lot of students struggle with, but I think we we do a lot that doesn't help with building those inference skills. And, and by that, I mean, inference is a, it's a slow skill, you know, in order to be able to infer information, often you have to read something multiple times, or you have to just read a, a short extract from a text and, and go quite deep. So the inference strategy is very much about slowing down. It's about close reading. Um, it's about taking the time to actually um, build layers of meaning from the text rather than what we sometimes fall into the trap of doing, which is, racing through a text just because we feel like we've got a lot of content to cover. Um, and I think students need to be, again, taught the skills and, and develop the skills that it needs to, to break down a text to that level and to infer and to make that meaning. So in terms of the student kind of student experience, that's, that's one idea, but then this book is really pitched. The audience for this book is teachers. So how do yes. you, how, what sort of approach, how do you teach teachers how to teach inference to students? If there's a, obviously there's a few, few layers yeah. there, but what, how do you, how are you, how do you approach that professional learning sort of um, experience? Yeah, yeah. I think the, um, the reason I chose this when, when Alicia asked me if I, if I had a book in there, the reason I chose the, the six strategies was that we, we've seen how effective they are um, at getting teachers to, to, to change up their teaching methods. So one thing that we fall into the trap of as English teachers is um, what I call death by comprehension questions, where we feel like we need to make sure that the kids have read the book. And we feel like the best way to do that is to give them a sheet of 25 comprehension questions that they have to work through to prove to us that they've read the book. Uh, I'm not really interested in that. I think what I would like to do is give the students a short extract of text and, you know, maybe they've read it before and maybe they haven't, but I would like them to spend a bit of time from it and, and make some meaning from that and to use that as the proof that they've engaged with the text. Um, you know, comprehension questions are very, very surface level. So in terms of how you get teachers to deliver this, um, it really it puts the student at the center. It says, look, at the end of the day, the students are the ones writing responses. The students are the ones who are at need to engage with these texts. The teacher doesn't need to stand at the front of the room and say how great they think Mary Bennett is. And, and I think Mary's fantastic. Um, uh, no, and, and I will stand at the front. Of, uh, look, I'll stand at the front of the classroom for an hour and tell my students how, how great I think Mary Bennett is, if you let me. But... That's not really the point. Um, the point is what they think about any of the Bennetts or any of those issues or themes in, in Pride and Prejudice. So this is uh, a, a, a toolkit, I guess, a set of activities that teachers can just pick up and walk into the classroom with that encourages them very much to put the students at the center of the discussion and just gives them a bit of structure around how to hold that discussion. So I had noticed in part one, the, the, the book's in two parts. The part one is all these student activities and they're, they're kind of scaffolded and, and um, well organized. But then part two, you go into, goes into a, um, a bit of an extension of some of the ideas. Can you tell us what's going on with, with those? Yeah. If, um, I guess if part one is the, the practical 
side of things and, and getting teachers to actually use these activities in classes and to, to adapt them for themselves. Part two is, is my position statement, I think, on teaching English in general. Um, there's, there's a bit in there around creating culture of reading in schools. There's a nod to disciplinary literacy and, and teaching literacy across the curriculum, so in, in other subjects other than English. And there is support in there for English leaders in developing an entire English curriculum, starting from constructing a single unit of work and moving up to um, a, a full curriculum for English that, that refocuses on these kinds of activities. And, and ultimately, with this book, um, it's, it's a, I guess, a, an entry-level uh, way into some of the thinking that I have around what teaching English is for which I think is to, to empower students to, to express themselves, to empower student voice, to allow them to engage with texts that they might not otherwise encounter and, and broaden their view of the world in that way. So I think English is a really powerful and important subject. Um, and that, you know, maybe somewhere along the way, we've, we've lost a bit of that with, with the standardized testings, um, you know, and things like NAPLAN and also the, the emphasis on the ATAR in senior school. And, and all of those ideas, they are really more what I'm focused on now as a, as a school leader, rather than just specifically the English curriculum. So it's part two is, I guess, it's a support for English leaders, but also a bit of a segue into the bigger picture ideas around education as a whole. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So there's so many different approaches um, to measuring student success. Um, personally, I find it really quite intriguing because I have a background as a science teacher. We measure student success quite differently. Um, how? So I guess my, my question is, how do you measure, as an English teacher, how do you measure student success? Um, yeah, no, that's a good question. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that you're a science teacher, actually, because I had a conversation recently with our head of science. We'd we just um, released our interim reports and there's a little tick box on there in the work, work ethics that was um, talking about the standard of work. Um, because we've changed some of our subjects, they hadn't done any formal assessments yet. And the head of science said, well, how, how do we mark standard of work when we haven't done any assessments and we don't have the, the numerical result from the assessments? And I said, do you use numerical results for assessments? Um, I've been teaching English here for 10 years and I don't think I've ever marked standard of work like that. You know, I, I would approach standard of work as a, a, an aggregate of my understanding of how they've engaged with the text, the conversations I've had with them. And it was really interesting to see the, the, the dichotomy between um, the you know, standard of work being assessed with a formal graded assessment versus standard of work being assessed with you know, I don't want to say the vibe because that probably <laughs> undervalues it, but the, the, the holistic impression of the teacher um, in that classroom. And I think both are valid in, in different circumstances. But as an English teacher, um, I spend a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with my students. And, you know, with a class of 25 in year 12, that might take me three or four periods to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with everyone. But that one-on-one -on -one conversation, I think, is really important 
in judging where they're at, in having conversations to see how they've engaged with the text, raise any questions or anything like that. Um, so in terms of you know, how, how that applies to measuring student success more broadly, I think we, we need to, and when I say we, I mean the system now, I'm talking about education in general. I think we need to steer away from the, the type of assessments that we've been using for years now. Um, and I think this movement is happening and it's building momentum. So, you know, we're, we're, our school is engaged with um, Melbourne University at the moment in their new metrics program. And they're working on a, a framework of assessments that assess things like um, critical thinking, creative thinking, collaboration, the kinds of skills which are addressed in the general capabilities in the Australian curriculum. And to use those as part of a broader learner profile rather than just the ATAR at the end of it. And I think we've become dominated by the ATAR and it's uniquely Australian. You know, the, the ranking system of the ATAR is uniquely Australian. We don't have that in the UK even. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of, particularly since the last couple of years where the ATAR has been very unimportant, you know, at the end of the remote learning periods, universities, a lot of them were disregarding ATARs. There were, you know, there were a lot of students getting early entry into university subjects um, without an ATAR. Yeah. And just, I think I, that I, shows I, that we can do it. I need to stop you there because I've heard this phrase, ATAR, 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 ATAR. For the audience, what, what is that? What is yeah, so the, I mean, the simple version? The, the, the tertiary admissions rank um, is it's a, a score out of 100 that, um, that ranks the students based on their senior studies results. So in, I'll, talk to, I'll talk about Victoria, which is where I'm based, but when students do the VCE at the end of year 12 and they get their study scores across various subjects um, and their ATAR will be the final score that they get, and their ATAR is made up of, in Victoria, their English score um, plus their top three other subjects and then any other um, increments, up, up to six subjects, essentially. And unfortunately, what's happened over time is that that score, that number, that rank out of 100, has come to dominate the, the top end of the educational landscape. So the senior schooling, VCE, HSE in New South Wales, for example, is very much dominated by which subjects scale up. So which subjects are, um, you know, the subjects that students are going to get higher study scores in potentially. Get a bigger uh, number. And, and a bigger number, yeah. And, and, you know, that's been perpetuated by universities. It's, you know, and ironically, University of Melbourne would be right up there in the universities that have perpetuated the, the dominance of the ATAR. But it's good to see that a lot of places are now pushing back against that. So some universities, Swinburne is one off the top of, um, off the top of my head, have dispensed with ATAR requirements and now lean much more heavily on, on a portfolio of work or an interview or... Uh, you know, an applications process that takes a lot more into account than that number. Yeah, I was going to ask, what, what are some of the alternatives if it doesn't just get ground down to this one this single number? What, what are some of the alternatives that universities ask for? So portfolios is definitely one, or interviews, um, other approaches? Yeah, I think these, um, the learner profiles that 
are being um, played around with at the moment in a lot of areas. They're, they're probably going to be the way that this goes, I think. Um, so South, South Australia, their um, South Australian Certificate of Education are implementing a learner profile. I know that New South Wales are looking into those as well. Um, and some places are just doing it independently. So, so we're working with a startup company, Adapt Education, um, and they're a platform that will take all of this information and uh, allow students to, to build a learner profile, which is essentially like a portfolio of all of their achievements. So yes, it, it will have their educational, you know, their formal assessments, their grades in there, but it also contains a, a bigger picture of the whole child. So, you know, the work that they do outside of school, their sports, their passions, their interests, any other credentialed courses they might've done, like a, like micro-credentialed courses online or digital courses, you know, the, the whole picture really, rather than just that one number. Yeah, I really like the idea of there's, there's all these, um, like engagement, the engaging with the text, for example, it's kind of potentially tricky to measure and tricky to kind of quantify maybe, but what you're outlining with all these all these kind of separate elements that are then aggregated, that it builds up a picture of what's going on mm -hmm. for a particular learner. And I mean, mm -hmm. with with what sort of like, like I noticed that say critical thinking is some of your activities point to that with the questioning or the mm -hmm. the kind of so there's yeah. a there's a kind of string of logic or if that's the phrase I don't know. Yes, yeah. there's a kind of it's not like it's a big blob of kind of unstructured creative thought it's it does have a kind of structure and a i can't think of the word um a method maybe yeah yeah i think method is a good word um i think part of what we're doing with the university of melbourne is trying to put um put some some rigor behind it because what people are concerned with is you know first of all can you measure something like creativity secondly should you because that's that's also a, a really important question. You know, should we be putting metrics around something like creativity? Uh, you know, possibly not. If you if you are or if you aren't, how do you um, collate evidence as a student? Because the students have ownership of their own learner profile. So how do I collate evidence about myself to show that I am a creative or a critical thinker or capable of collaborating? So the activities in my book, for example, a lot of them are. Um, designed to be collaborative. A lot of them are small group activities. Most of them, in fact, are small group activities. So a teacher can see whilst these activities are happening, whether or not students are comfortable collaborating. Um, you know, some students, they might work better independently. So we need to be flexible in these measurements as well. You know, holding up a benchmark of, you know, this much collaboration is good and less collaboration of that is bad, I think is the wrong way to do that. So the frameworks that we're working with with the University of Melbourne, they're not a, um, you know, they're not a rubric. They're not a hierarchy. It doesn't say you need 10 out of 10 in collaboration. It says, this is how you collaborate. And that's not good or bad. We're not judging that as good or bad, but we're saying this is how you as a, a learner collaborate with others. And that's a particular skill set that you have. And this is how you showcase that to a future employer or a tertiary provider or whatever. I guess at the heart of a lot of this is measuring students' um, uh, students' ability or students, you know, the kind of whole purpose of why they're they're engaging with the English curriculum. 
but then there's different approaches. What what are some obstacles or how, how come these other approaches aren't just fully embraced? What's what's preventing that or what's a sort of challenge sort of in this particular context? Yeah. I think the biggest challenge that teachers face, um, and, and this is all teachers, but English teachers as well, the, the biggest challenge that teachers face is that we feel there's a lot of pressure from the top down. So we feel that the ATAR dictates the pace of the senior curriculum. So we feel that what we teach in the classroom has to point towards the, the outcome at the end. So our English students, they do a three hour English exam at the end of the year. So our teaching has to be directed towards that, which then cascades down in that the middle and junior years tend to also point towards that as, as the end point. That's a very top down view of education. And I think that the only way to counter that is to talk about teacher autonomy and teacher trust. And I think that when we get to the stage where we're willing to trust teachers in making judgments about their students in their classrooms, trust that teachers can use the most appropriate activities in their classrooms to engage students and to to instruct them and to get them to enjoy reading or enjoy writing even, then that, that trust and that autonomy that's a that's a, a bottom up kind of approach to education, and I think that's really what we need to aim for. So I think once we once we get that in our system in Australia, we'll be heading in the right direction. You know, teachers trusted, teachers treated as professionals, treat, teachers given the autonomy to to dictate the pace of their lessons, the content, the ways they engage with students, and then ultimately the autonomy to 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 take a whole picture of a student. And to say, look, this is what this student is capable of. And, and I know that because I am their teacher and they are in the classroom with me. Yeah, it's very interesting because it's kind of like how do you, how does one gather evidence that that's effective or, you know, even effective might be a controversial word, but um, what, what, how do, how do, like culturally uh, and even sis- systematically or systemically, these sort of instruments like the ATAR are kind of offer um, a certain usefulness, but they they seem like they're they're limited. And then this other idea of you know teachers being in the best position to to ascertain a a learner or a student's ability. Um, how do you how do you kind of present a compelling argument or a you know a, a case for for this these other approaches? Hmm. I think that um, at the end of the day, and and this is a bit of a call to action as well, I guess, but teachers have more power than we think sometimes. I've found in the last couple of years a lot, an incredible amount of support from the tertiary sector and from, from industry in people who are willing to work with teachers and school leaders in busting out of things like the ATAR. So whilst we can say that the ATAR is something imposed on us from the top down, I think we also have to acknowledge that we have the power to push back against it from, from a grassroots kind of level. And, and I think that's happening now. And I'm seeing a lot of momentum build up um, in, in secondary education, certainly, around teachers who they know that these methods are outdated. They know that this education system doesn't work for students anymore, if it ever did. And they're doing something about it. And now maybe the system's slow to change. Systems are always slow to change, particularly the education system. 
but we just do it anyway. You know, we, we just, we just roll on through and we build up momentum and eventually the system will catch up with, with what we're doing. In this episode, I chatted with Leon Furs, a teacher educator and author. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to Leon's blog and information about his latest book, Practical Reading Strategies, Engaging Activities for Secondary Students. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.